simply isn't fair that Huey gets to go first, and uh, the irony is uh, that what Huey said about me is almost virtually word for word what I was going to say about him. Uh, it really was. Um, and uh, his, even, even down to the, the wording of saying that uh, about uh, being kept on the straight and narrow, I was going to say that about Huey in my life, and, uh, and I was going to use those same words, so I don't know what that means. Maybe we have uh, spent too many years together, but uh, it, is, it is true. And actually, I believe it will be relevant to our, our time here this morning. Um, it truly is a, a, a joy to be with you here this morning, and if I could say it's a, it's a great joy, and I hope that means something more to you by the time we're done here this morning. Um, our family is involved at Grace Church of Orange, and I really feel like uh, our churches are, are truly kindred spirits. Uh, I, I know a lot of people here uh, at Cornerstone, and uh, there's been a lot of overlap and connection in various ministries and other opportunities between our churches, and so there really is a, uh, a kindred spirit between our churches. And in fact, um, our family, we were at, uh, at our church this morning for our early service, and uh, we walked out, and our, this morning we were singing Only Jesus, and I walk in here this morning, and the worship team is practicing, and the song they're singing is Only Jesus, and I feel like I just kind of, you know, merged from one into the other, and uh, so this is, this is uh, great to be with you here this morning. We're going to be looking today at Jude, verses 24 and 25. Jude, verses 24 and 25. And while you're turning there, I just want to let you know that my family is always a, a great encouragement to me. And so this morning we arrive, and as my kids often want to do, they want to encourage me knowing that I'm going to speak this morning. And so here they are over here, Isaac, Seth, and Abigail, and my wife, Alice. Um, I don't know which one of them first said it, but they wanted to make sure they pointed out to me that I have a coffee stain right here on my shirt. And I wanted to make sure that I was self-conscious about it, and they said everyone was going to laugh at me, which you all just did, so thank you very much. But my kids wanted to make sure I was, I was comfortable in coming before you this morning. So with that out of the way, let's look at Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy... To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Lord, we come to you this morning and ask that you would show us yourself more clearly. God, that we would understand you and your love and your, your greatness more abundantly. God, that you would give me the words to somehow communicate even the smallest part of what you have done for us and that that truth would be life-changing and that it would be used to conform us to the image of your son. God, we commit this time and these words and our thoughts and everything that goes on here this morning to you. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Huey uh, said, uh, we've known each other for a long time and I'm gonna share one kind of Matthew and Huey's story to get us started. Uh, in sixth grade, we go to nature camp uh, for our school. We went, we went to a place called Rawhide Ranch. And there's one night there at, uh, at Rawhide Ranch where they traditionally bring the whole grade together, our sixth grade class, and we sit around the campfire and it usually evolves into this kind of soul-bearing uh, time between everybody in the, in the, in the grade. And uh, before you know it, people are sharing their, their, uh, their deepest thoughts and asking for forgiveness from their friends and confessing. And, and you, we had, we have, uh, you know, 80 or so sixth graders sitting around this fire and tears are pouring down everyone's face. Everyone in the entire group is crying and emotional, except for two, Matthew and Huey. We're sitting there stoically, not showing any emotion, and everyone else in the entire group is, uh, is crying as they're expressing their, uh, their affections and, and uh, confessions and so forth for each other in the group. I say that to, uh, to just outline that I'm not usually an emotional person. But when we come to Jude 24 and 25, these are verses that move me emotionally more than any other verses in the Bible. The truth in these verses, they rock my soul 
They inflate my heart. These verses pull on my heart in such a way that they compel life-defining action. So let's look at Jude 24 and 25 today. Generally, these verses are recognized as a rich theological declaration about the doctrine of, of eternal security. It's a statement about the permanence of God's saving love and how God preserves his saints bringing them from justification all the way to glorification. But today, I'd like to to push one layer deeper. Most definitely, as we look at these verses, we'll see a proclamation about the permanence of God's saving work for his children. But one step further, I believe that Jude 24 and 25 gives us a theology of true joy, a theology of great joy. Paul told the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. As my son Seth would say, that, that's a hard rule. It's, that's hard to do. Jude 24 and 25, though, provides us with the perspective, with the framework, with the theology that becomes the ground for great joy. It's the foundation on which we can fulfill Paul's call to rejoice always. So the book of Jude was written by the half-brother of Jesus, and he identifies himself, though, as the bondservant of Jesus Christ in the, in the opening verses here of Jude in, in verse 1. He says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The letter is written to fellow believers, imploring them to contend earnestly for the faith, specifically writing to contend against false teaching and apostasy. The church was still in its infancy stages at this time, And false teachers had infiltrated the church. And Jude was writing to warn the church against the invasion of heretics who had distorted the doctrine of grace. And they'd turned it into an excuse for moral license. And so Jude comes to verse 3 and he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This word, he says he's he's appealing that they contend earnestly for the faith. It's the idea of of agonizing for the faith. It's it's an athletic term of of striving, of, of giving maximum effort for the faith, contending against the false teaching. And then at the end of the letter, Jude is addressing a concern that his readers may have had over the course of reading the letter. They may have thought, what if... As we contend in the face of of such evil and opposition, what if we get mixed up in the heresy? What if we get stained in the process? What if we get polluted? What if we're singed by the fire? What if can we lose our faith? Can we lose our salvation? That would have to be the thoughts of the readers that Jude was addressing. So Jude bookends his letters, his letter with, with two statements of Rock of Gibraltar-type truth. In verse 1, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He identifies three characteristics of those that he's writing to. He says that they're the called. Then he says that they're beloved in Christ or beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those are the three characteristics that Jude begins in addressing his letter. He starts his letter with a reminder that God's love is a keeping love. He calls and he keeps. And then he ends the letter in verses 24 and 25 with an echo of the same great doctrinal promise, that God is the one that keeps you. And this echo explodes into a sweeping statement of worship as he concludes his letter. Now, it's the last three words of Jude, verse 24, that I believe are the linchpin for these verses. And they they provide the understanding that colors our perspective of these verses. With great joy, he says. So today I'd like to look at four truths about great joy for those who, who belong to Jesus Christ. Four truths about great joy for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And we'll start today with the expression of great joy, the expression of great joy. 
Jude begins verse 24 with the, the words to him, now to him. There is a, a him identified here and something is being ascribed to him. The rest of verse 24 is more of a description of this hymn, but the beginning of verse 25 specifically identifies the hymn. To the only God, our Savior. Jude's attention is directed to God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. Jude is directing his attention to God, and Jude is ascribing attributes to God, glory, majesty, dominion, authority. He's not giving these attributes to God. God's attributes are not relative to culture or time or to anything else. They're inherent to who he is. But Jude is recognizing who God is. He's recognizing God's glory. This, this word glory evokes the, the idea of weight, of weightiness, of importance, of great esteem or respect. It relates to the reverence and respect that are, that are owed to God. It's a recognition of God's exalted position. And by definition, then, it's a, it's a statement of humility in being subject to this position. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory. And then he says, majesty. Majesty reinforces this idea of glory. It speaks to greatness and preeminence. It speaks to God's ultimate royalty. And then he says, dominion. It's also translated as, as power or might. It refers to God's sovereignty and his omnipotent rule. It builds on the idea of his kingship and it establishes his great power that he holds in exercising his rule. And then Jude recognizes God's authority, his power and right to do anything that he pleases. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Jude is acknowledging these attributes of God. He's not, again, giving anything to God. God already has all glory, all majesty, all dominion, all authority. But Jude recognizes these truths. And he recognizes that they are not bound by time. These truths are not bound by time. They are true from eternity past to eternity future, before all time, now and forever. God is a God of glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Note that a heart that is exploding with great joy, which is how Jude ends verse 24, a heart that is exploding with great joy that is based on deep doctrinal truth responds by recognizing, by acknowledging, and celebrating truth about God. Worship always includes recognition of truth about God. That's what we have here. This is an expression of worship, and it's based on deep, profound truth about God. In this case, Jude is recognizing glory, majesty, dominion, authority. What brings about this great statement of worship and praise by Jude? Well, this brings us to our central theme for this morning. Verse 24 lands on this phrase, with great joy, and Jude rolls into verse 25, proclaiming the attributes of God. That's what I want to know about. I don't know about you, but going through life, I want to know about great joy. I want to know how can I rejoice in the Lord always, and again, rejoice The word here for joy means exceeding joy, exultation. This is a big joy, great joy. Does that describe your life? I'll tell you it's not true for me all the time, probably not nearly as often as I would like it to be. But we're called to have lives of great joy, and Jude is modeling how we can have great joy. For him here, it is an anticipation and appreciation of this great joy that leads Jude to burst forth in declaring his awe of God. Joy is tied to worship. Worship and joy are intrinsically tied together in a reciprocal relationship. In this verse, we get just a glimpse of the foundation of what makes heaven so heavenly. Heaven is heaven because that's where we bask in the glory of God with great joy. We were made for his glory. We were made to be in his glory. We're naturally inclined for greatness, for majesty, for beauty. We have a built-in attraction and, and desire for that which is greater for us, that which is, is majestic, for that which stuns us with beauty. That's why we're left in awe of beautiful sunsets, 
why the vastness of the ocean from the beach can be so mesmerizing. It's why the stars in the sky on a clear night in the desert can take our breath away. It's why we can be infatuated with musicians and athletes and actors. We're attracted to greatness. It's why people can be infatuated with and breathlessly awaiting the birth of a, of a new prince or princess to the royal family in England, why they can wake up at three o'clock in the morning to, to tune into royal weddings. We're drawn to the pageantry, to the royalty, to the beauty of such events. But all of these things, even if they're good, are only faint shadows of the one who is truly majestic, truly great, truly beautiful. Almighty God, our souls have a built-in magnetic pull towards greatness and majesty and, and beauty because we're hardwired for the ultimate one who satisfies completely. Everything else leaves us less than satisfied. He's the one that we were made for, to be satisfied by his greatness and beauty and majesty. We need to see all of created beauty and majesty as as simply foretastes of glory divine, as a taste of the glory to come, as a, as a taste of the, of the glory of the creator where we're to find our ultimate and true eternal satisfaction. We find our joy in the presence of his glory and our joy spills out into worship. We're going to worship for all of eternity, but we're not gonna worship out of compulsion. We're not gonna be robotic worshipers. We are going to worship because we want to worship. And what is going to compel our worship? It is going to flow out of a great joy of being in the presence of Almighty God, of basking in his glory. We will worship because we will want to worship. He satisfies our every need, our every want, our every desire. And we will be so overcome by all that he is. Our only possible response is worship. Worship is joy, and we worship out of joy. They're tied together. We can't separate worship and joy. Worship is the ultimate expression of great joy. And this is what eternity will be. And the reality is that the fountain of joy that flows for eternity is the same fountain that we can go to for joy in this life. You see, the reason that these verses move me at an emotional level is that in the middle of trials of life, in the middle of hard times, when when life is difficult, when life is hard, these verses are my north star that lead me to great joy. They lead me to worship. The hope in these verses is what gets me through life. This is the hope that the, reader, the writer of Hebrews was referring to when he talked about the hope that is an anchor of our soul. Take away the truth of these verses and life would crush me. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And we may rejoice with exultation. Well, where does this joy come from? Well, there's a price to be paid for such great joy. There's a cost. This brings us to our, our second truth about great joy. The first was that, there, that the expression of great joy, which is worship, Secondly, we, we see the price of great joy. Jude here speaks of great joy in standing blameless, he says in verse 24, in the presence of his glory. Blameless in the presence of God's glory. Can you imagine standing in God's presence with great joy? It's a mind-blowing thought. I don't know what we normally think of standing in God's presence and relate it to great joy. That's not the picture we generally see in Scripture. Being in the presence of God's glory is either the greatest horror in the universe or it's the fountain of greatest possible joy. Look with me to a familiar passage for just a minute. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. 
starting in verse 1. It says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I, Isaiah speaking, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. This is a picture of, of the Lord. We know from John 12, I believe this is referring to, to Jesus specifically. And Isaiah continues and describes the scene that says, he says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Can you see the picture? There's the Lord sitting on his throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his, of his robe filling the temple, and there's these angels hovering around, and their whole purpose is to, is to worship. And we see in verse 3 that they're calling out to one another, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and that's, that's the job of these angels is to, is to proclaim the holiness and the glory of the Lord. And they're not whispering. They're not whispering. It says the, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. They are calling out in such a loud voice that the very foundations are trembling. I can't yell loud enough this morning to make the foundations of this room tremble. You can imagine the volume at which the angels are declaring the holiness and the glory of the Lord. And then to make things even greater, it says in verse 4, while the temple was filling with smoke. So the temple is filling with smoke. There's angels. The train of the, robe, of the Lord's robe is filling the temple. He's lofty and exalted, sitting on his throne. And what's Isaiah's response in the presence of the glory of the Lord? He says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am falling apart. I'm coming undone. Isaiah fell apart in the presence of God's glory. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's the prophet of God, the one who speaks the very words of God. Probably the most holy part of his body was his mouth and his first response in the presence of the glory of the Lord was, I'm a man of unclean lips. He felt acutely his sin. And he felt like he was coming undone, like he was falling apart. That's, that's the sense of what we have when we are in God's presence and have an awareness of our sin. It was a frightful experience for Isaiah. He felt the weight of his sin, but God had mercy on him and forgave him and cleansed him, sent the angel to burn his mouth clean. But we have the promise of standing in the presence of the glory of God in the awesomeness of his glory and the majesty of all that God is with great joy. Why? Because we, who are the called, the children of God, can be blameless. We don't have to feel the sting of our sin we can stand before the Lord of all of creation, blameless. The key to great joy is being blameless in the presence of his glory, without, without sin, without stain. Unless we're blameless in the presence of his glory, being in such a presence would produce only terror at God's righteous judgment. Now, this theology is not just for our intellectual understanding. If we do understand just a glimpse of the incomprehensible value of being blameless in the presence of God's glory, there should be an emotional response. If our minds and our brains and our hearts comprehend the depth of the truth that there is to being blameless in the presence of God's glory, there should be an emotional response. And at least a part of that should be great joy. We can't be in such a presence and be blameless without responding in that way. 
Now note how we stand in the presence of his glory blameless. How is it that this blamelessness is achieved? Back in Jude, there in 24, he says, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. He makes you stand in the presence blameless. He makes us blameless. Romans 3.22 says that the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. We come to faith recognizing our sinfulness, our need for a substitute to, to bear our punishment. We see the value of the cross and we put our faith and our trust in Jesus to be our punishment bearer and God makes us righteous. He makes us look like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is why Jude says in verse 24, he's ascribing all these attributes to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's through Jesus Christ that we can be blameless, that God is our Savior through Jesus Christ. He saves us from our sins through Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1, the, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, looking like Jesus is the condition of being in God's presence. It's the condition of experiencing great joy in the glory of God. Looking like Jesus is the price of admission to heaven. It's the price of great joy. And he is the one who paid the price to make you look like him. He's the one who paid the price so that you could be in the presence of his glory. He's the one who paid the price so that you could worship with great joy. The price is that he makes us blameless and makes us look like Jesus. That's why every step we take in life should be running to the cross or maybe better yet crawling to the cross in humility and repentance. If we're not constantly turning back and returning to the cross, it may be that we don't truly have the hope of being covered by the righteousness of Christ. And if we don't have Christ's righteousness, we're going to be stained by our sin. We won't be blameless in the presence of his glory. And there's not a hope for great joy. But the cross gives us assured hope of great joy. Jesus pays the price. So we've seen the expression of great joy, worship, and the price of great joy, looking like Jesus. And now we look at the reason for great joy, the reason for great joy. I'm kind of working through verse 24 backwards, if you haven't noticed. We work back here, and it says in, at the beginning of 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Not only does he make us stand blameless in the presence of his glory, but he has the power. He is able to keep us from stumbling. Do you fear stumbling? It's appropriate that we fear stumbling. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which, you, by which also you are saved. That's the good news. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you. You are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. Colossians 1, 21 and following says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. That's the good news. If Indeed, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. There are if statements. It seems like there are massive conditions to our salvation. And if it seems like there are massive conditions to our salvation, it's because there are. But he is the one who fulfills those conditions. He is able, he has the power to keep us. He keeps us from stumbling. He holds us. He keeps us in the faith. 
He keeps us from falling away. He keeps us dependent on him. He fulfills the conditions. Great joy is assured to those who believe because he's the one who keeps us. I don't have any hope of waking up in the morning and keeping myself in the faith. He holds me. He keeps me. We live in a world ruled by the prince of the power of the air. We walk among people everywhere who love darkness rather than light. The exaltation of sin in our world produces a relentless cascade of value distortion that would result in total abandonment of the gospel if not for a supernatural guarding of our souls. This is the reason that we have hope, the reason that we can fix our hope on the grace that is to come. The reason that we have great joy and the reason that it is assured is because he's doing the keeping. This word to keep, he is able to keep you from stumbling. It's the idea of to preserve from danger or harm or to guard. It's often used in the context of strength. And in Luke chapter 11, verse 21, it talks about a strong man guarding his home and his possessions. The guarding is is guarding from a position of strength. Now, in our family, we're we're a baseball family. Um, We spend, especially this time of the year, we spend our, our Saturdays largely at the baseball field. I think we were there pretty much all day yesterday and a lot that we do, our, our boys play baseball. Our daughter is, whether she likes it or not, at baseball games all the time. A while back, I read an article about the first baseman for the Detroit Tigers, Prince Fielder. And it was talking about how strong Prince Fielder is. Here are some of the things that some of his teammates said about Prince Fielder. They said, he's even stronger than you think. His arms are so big you could tattoo a map of the United States on one of his biceps and still have room for Argentina. I don't know if I understand what that means, but it sounds pretty strong. He's the strongest man in baseball, no doubt, and I really think he could hold his own in the world's strongest man competition. Another said, his arms are bigger than my legs. And still another said, He's stupid strong, just stupid strong. I tried to figure out what stupid strong meant, but I guess it's the idea that he's so strong, he leaves you feeling stupid trying to explain and describe his strength. It's indescribable, inexplainable strength. Now, Prince Fielder might be strong, but there are other strong guys in the world. I might even be able to convince my kids that I'm that strong. Probably not. But if Prince Fielder is indescribably strong, how do we even begin to talk about the strength of the one who spoke all things into existence? The strength of the one who holds all things together by the power of his word, who calms the wind and the waves and controls earthquakes and hurricanes and raises people from the dead who conquered death himself. How do we describe that? I don't know. But that's the strength, that's the power of the one who keeps you. 1 Peter 1.5 speaks of how we are protected by the power of God. We are kept by the power of God. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. It's the power and might and strength of God that raised Jesus from the dead that is working toward us. And how is it working toward us? It is that strength, that power that keeps us. Psalm 121.3 says, he will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. So Jude ties the conclusion of his letter back to the beginning of his letter where he addresses those who are the called, beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ. He keeps us. So we saw the expression of great joy, the price of great joy, the reason for great joy. The reason is that he keeps us in the faith. And I want to 
spend our remaining time here looking at the means of great joy. How does he do it? How does God keep us in the faith? How does he keep us from stumbling? How is it that we don't get swept up with the, the, the culture of sin that we live in and that we're not enticed by the lusts of the flesh, that we don't find darkness more attractive than light? How is it that we don't get caught up in those things and abandon the faith? Well, I want to look at two broad categories of how God does this, and I'm going to tell you right now that this is not going to be a comprehensive overview. I just want to touch on a few things, and I want to look at the two broad categories as how God does that internally to us and how he does that externally to us. And I'll tell you up front that I'm going to spend more of the time on the external portion, but the internal is just important. But for our purposes today, I just want to draw your attention to some external things. But I do want to look at the internal. First of all, God keeps us from the moment of salvation by giving us a new heart. God performs open heart surgery. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. We are given a heart that will be sensitive to God's prodding to the movement of the Holy Spirit in us and dwelling in us. God gives us a new heart that responds to him. And that heart is part of how he keeps us. And then God directs our hearts into the love of God. Well, this one might be a little harder to wrap your head around. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 to 5. I'll, I'll try to cover this in a short amount of time. 2, Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 3 to 5 says, But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing well and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. God directs our hearts into the love of God. And that's part of how he keeps us. I want to draw your attention back to the beginning of Jude again, verse 1, to this idea that we are kept for Jesus Christ, kept to worship Jesus with great joy. But note that this is addressed toward those who are beloved by God. You see, Jude 24 and 25 is really a description of the immeasurable, boundless, infinite, active love of God toward his children. That's why Jude exhorts back in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. It's not that we can do anything to put ourselves in the love of God, let alone keep ourselves there. The beginning and end of Jude make it clear that God's the one who does the keeping. But we want to be ever mindful and overwhelmed by God's love. We want to be in his love. God directs our hearts into the love of God, Paul says. And he does this through the power of his word and through the work of the Holy Spirit. He tells us to keep ourselves in love and then he overwhelms us with revelation about his love. And he showers us in that truth and the magnitude of his love for us. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul tells us that we're to be imitators of God. That's another hard rule, imitate God. But he says that we're to do that as beloved children, that we're to imitate God. Another, another way of saying that we should look like Jesus. But then Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, that we're to walk in love. And how does he say that we're to do that? He gives Jesus as the example of love. He describes the love of Jesus, and he directs our new heart, our attention, and our affections to the love that God pours out for us in Jesus. And as he directs our attention and our affections towards the love that God gives us, we respond in love to him, and our hearts that are directed towards him are kept by him. Let me put it this way. The more that we're consumed by an understanding of God's love for us, the more that we understand that because of his love, he paid a ransom to purchase us from bondage to sin, leading to rightful eternal damnation, and that he in love clothed us with his righteousness and adopted us as his children. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great love, made us alive together in Christ. The more that truth is real and vivid to us, the more that we're consumed by the love of God, the more that our hearts will be directed to the love of God and we will respond by loving God ourselves and the tighter his grip will be on our souls he keeps us by giving us new hearts and by directing our hearts toward an understanding of his love he also gives us the mind of christ according to first corinthians 2 
2 Thessalonians 2.13 and all throughout the Bible talks about that it gives us the Holy Spirit to live in us. We have the God of the universe living in us, affecting how we live, prompting us, guiding us. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He gives us the Holy Spirit to keep us. He gives us the mind of Christ. He directs our hearts. He gives us a new heart. All these things he's internally working out in us to keep us. But I want to look to the external as well. God does things externally to us to keep us. Psalm 37 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. We may fall, but the Lord won't allow us to fall headlong because he's holding our hand. He'll bring us back when we fall, start to fall away. And I think he does this by orchestrating our lives, by bringing circumstances into our lives, by bringing people into our lives to guide and to direct us to where he wants us to be, to keep us on the path. God is sovereign. It's like kids going bowling and the, those bumpers come popping up and you roll the ball down the lane and it has no prayer of hitting any pins, but it bounces off the pump bumpers and it makes its way to the end and knocks over pins. And I kind of see it in that way, that God is putting people and circumstances and events in our lives like bumpers that are keeping us down the path, taking us to glorification. We're going to make it to the end because God keeps us. He brings circumstances, people, and acts into our lives to be those bumpers, to keep us in the lane. For those that belong to him, he keeps us from going all the way into the gutter. He keeps us from abandoning the faith. Psalm 115 says, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. God is sovereign. He brings people and circumstances into our lives to keep us and make us cling to him, to see him as valuable, to run to him. I'm gonna give you a few ways that maybe he does that. Number one, he does that through difficulties in our lives. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul's speaking about the thorn in his flesh and he entreated the Lord three times to remove it from him and the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. Power is perfected in weakness. For you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood that God brings difficulties into our lives so that we would see ourselves as weak and that we would see him as strong, so that we would cling to him, treasure him, run to him, depend on him, and that's how he keeps us, by bringing those kinds of things into our lives. Do you see the circumstances in your life in that way? Think about your own life. What's happened in your life that God has used to keep you, to bring you back to him, to make you depend on him, to see him as your only treasure? Think about what's going on in your life right now. Today, how is God using what's happening to hold on to you? If we look at all of life like this, consider how it would color our perspective on everything that happens to us. Even as you're living in the middle of difficult circumstances, we can see God is using this to keep me, to hold me, to cause me to run to him. Romans 8, 29 and 30, Paul outlines how the whole point of our salvation is that we'd be conformed to the image of his son, that we'd be conformed to look like Jesus. And right before that, he says, God causes all things to work together for good. What's the good? Let's not shortchange the good just to say that everything's gonna work out for us. The good is he is going to work all things out together for good for our keeping, for our holding, so that those who are called will be justified and will go all the way to glorification. He works all things out together for good to keep us. And why do we care? Because it's the keeping that ultimately establishes us to be blameless, that we get great joy in the glory of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is going to complete what he has promised to do. Who could be against us? My wife Alice and I met at UCLA. Um, 
We were involved in the same on-campus Christian fellowship, Grace on Campus. I know some of you here were involved there. There were about probably two or 300 people in the group over the, the period of time that we were there. And looking back, there are a handful of people we can see who have turned from the faith that were involved in that group and now no longer are walking with the Lord, that have, have outright rejected the gospel. By all appearances, they were never saved. And Alice and I have talked, this, talked about this over the years, and, and we ask, what happened? What happened? In these cases, and this is not necessarily universal, but it seems that the common denominator in these people is that they came from backgrounds without strong spiritual support. They weren't from Christian families. They didn't have solid home churches. They came to college. They were introduced to the gospel. They were fed. They got involved in this Christian on-campus group. But for whatever reason, when these people left college and they went back home, they didn't quickly get connected to a local church or to a local body of believers, and they were on their own, and some of them, they fell away. They didn't just fade into oblivion, although some did, but some just came to the point where they outright rejected the gospel. Alice and I have talked about how that could have been her. She didn't come from a Christian home. She didn't have a solid home church. She was saved the summer before going to college, and she came to UCLA, got involved in Grace on Campus, but she didn't necessarily have any support structure back home for when school was done. So that's where I tell her, God sent me to you to keep you. Tell her that teasing a little bit. But I think it's true. God sent her, by the way, to me to keep me. But maybe it's a little more tangible when we look at her. Consider this. We get married and Alice inherits a whole Holbrook clan, and she's absorbed into this, this mess of a, of a family with a rich spiritual heritage. And then she's connected to our home church, to Grace Church of Orange, where she serves and is served, where she ministers and is ministered to. Now, what if Alice were to walk away from the faith? What do you think would happen? What if she were to reject the gospel? I can assure you that there would be a whole slew of Holbrooks chasing after her, led by her husband, who'd be pleading with her, exhorting her, encouraging her, begging her to come back to the faith, pointing her back to the cross. But we Holbrooks would not be alone. Many from our church would be right there chasing after her. The reality is this several of you that would be as well. God is keeping her, and for that matter, he's keeping me, but he uses people to keep Alice, to keep me, to keep you. He does that for all of his children. Think about your own life. How is God keeping you? If you abandon the faith, who would come chasing after you? God uses people in our lives, and specifically, he uses the local church to keep us. And I just want to think about that for a few minutes here as we wrap up today. God never intended the local church to be part of our lives. God intended the local church to be our lives. The local church is the tip of the spear in how God holds on to us and keeps us. Consider this. God uses the local church to keep us. I'll give you a few examples. Through godly leadership that protects us. God tells the Ephesian church in Acts chapter, or Paul, I'm sorry, tells the, the leaders of the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20 to be on guard for yourselves and over all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Church leadership is charged with guarding the flock to shepherd them to protect the flock God uses godly leadership to hold on to his people. God uses the local church to keep us through the encouragement of the brethren. In Acts 14, 21 and 22, Paul and Barnabas are, are traveling and it says in verse 21, after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium uh, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what happens in a local church body. We encourage each other in the faith. 
We encourage each other to be steadfast. We strengthen each other. This is what happens in the church. God uses us to hold on to each other. Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God uses each of us to hold on to each other. God does that through the prayer of other believers. Acts 14, 23, talking about Paul and Barnabas, that the elders came together and prayed for them with fasting and commended them to the Lord. God uses our prayers somehow for each other in how he holds on to us. He does that through testimonies. Acts chapter 15, again, Paul and Barnabas are traveling and they're being sent on their way by the church. It says in verse three, and they are passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and they were bringing great joy, there's that phrase again, to all the brethren when they arrived at Jerusalem. They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all that God had done with them. We report to each other, what's God doing in your life? We share with each other, look what God did and we hear from other people what God did and we're encouraged and we're strengthened and we we give testimonies and we gather together on Sunday mornings and we hear testimonies about what God is doing and God uses those testimonies to keep us. He does it through the preaching of his word, Colossians 1.28, and we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. We are presented complete through the proclamation of God's word. God uses his preaching to keep us. Through loving correction, 1 Thessalonians 5, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We admonish, admonish, we encourage, we help, we come alongside. God uses the local church to keep us through song. Ephesians 5.19 says that we're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with, our hearts to the, with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Something happens when we come together and we sing together. We sing to each other. We sing to the Lord that God is working in our hearts and he is knitting us together and he is knitting us to him. God keeps us when we are singing together. Do you realize you can't sing with other believers when you're by yourself? That's profound, isn't it? But something happens when we gather together as believers and sing, and God keeps us. Philippians 1.27, Paul tells the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he gives three criteria. I'm not gonna take the time to look at it now, but you can um, write this down. He gives three criteria for how we can be worthy of the gospel. He says that we're to be united in spirit, that we're to be of one mind, and we're to strive together for the sake of the gospel. You can't do any of those three things by yourself. Worthy of the gospel, it's the highest calling we can have. And he says that we're to be united in spirit, we're to be united together in spirit. You can't be united together by yourself. You can't be of one mind, multiple people coming together with their minds fixed on the word of God as if they have multiple minds but merged as one because they're so in tune with God's word. You can't do that by yourself. You can't strive together for the gospel by yourself. Our worthiness of the gospel plays out through the local church. God holds us. He uses us together in the body of Christ. Let me say, this, this weighs heavily on me. I love being a part of Grace Church of Orange. I really do. I love ministering. I love being a part of the body. I love Grace Church of Orange. But if I were honest, that's not why I'm so connected to that church. The primary reason is because I need to be there. When I'm gone, I feel it. I feel God's hold on me through our church. I've been encouraged there. I've been admonished there. I've been strengthened there. Now, church is more than just Sunday mornings. But the apex of the church, the pinnacle, the highest point happens on Sunday mornings. The only time when the whole body gathers together for on a regular basis, when God's word is proclaimed together and we sing together, through fellowship we give testimony of what God's doing in our lives, This is an important time. Something uniquely special is happening right now. God uses this to hold us, to keep us. Going to church doesn't make you any more saved, doesn't get you saved, doesn't make God like you better. But if 
one of God's primary ways of keeping me is through the local church. And if Sunday mornings is the apex of the local church, if that's how God is keeping me, then I want to be right in the center of his ironclad grip. I want to be in our church. I want to be in his hands. I need to be there. I need to sing God's praise, to be with God's people, to be reminded of God's promises, to see God's perspective, to feel God's presence, to witness God's power, to submit to God's prerogative, to understand God's purposes. I need to be in our church. And if Cornerstone is your home church, let me just say that I want you to feel a sense of urgency about being here in this place on Sunday mornings. I want you to feel the magnitude of being here. You may come here every Sunday, but you come with a sense of urgency, a sense of of the necessity for the sake of your soul. God holds on to you through what happens in this place. This is not a legalistic perspective, but if this is how God keeps me, then my heart demands, my deepest desires demand that I want to be exactly where he keeps me. How long is a typical service here? Maybe I'm going long. I'm almost done, but what, 90 minutes? I did the math. I didn't even need a spreadsheet. It's less than nine-tenths of 1% of your week is your Sunday morning service. It's not a huge sacrifice, but do you, do you see the stakes are high? This is valuable time. Again, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but I just want to emphasize that this is an important component of the normative Christian life. And for me, if there's 90 minutes in the service, I want to be here for every one of them. In our family, we put a premium importance on being at church from the very beginning. We're not perfect, but it's a, it's a massive priority. I know what it's like to be tired and to have a hard time getting the kids ready. I know what it's like to get caught up in other duties and responsibilities. But I want to make a statement to myself about the importance of gathering together as one body on Sunday mornings. I want to make a statement to my family about the importance of what happens on Sunday mornings. I need to make a statement to my soul about the importance of what God does during these times. And being here for every minute makes a statement about the importance. If it's important to gather with God's people for worship, for prayer, for teaching and preaching of his word, if God uses that to hold me, and that's what leads to ultimate great joy, I'm going to make every effort to be here for every minute. For those who turn to him and put their faith in Jesus, he keeps us from stumbling. He's the one who makes us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That which brings joy in that day when we stand in his presence is the same thing that brings us joy today, in the here and now, in the midst of sorrow, pain, difficulty, suffering, because all that happens in life points to the ultimate joy that overcomes all of the tribulation of life. It's all a backdrop. God's glory will shine all the brighter when it shines against the darkness of the difficulties of our lives and the joy that we experience in being blameless in his presence will only be that much greater when compared to the sufferings of this life. He holds us. He keeps us. He presents us blameless to stand in his presence, in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Understanding that hope should stir in our hearts to respond in joy no matter what the situation because that trumps everything else. It's because of this truth, this truth, we can rejoice in the Lord always. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Lord, it's a staggering truth to understand the gravity of our sin. God, to understand what we deserve, and yet you have not only called us out of darkness and into light, but God, you have made us blameless through the cross. 
God, that you not only make us blameless, but you, you keep us in you. You hold on to us. You keep us from stumbling. God, you are the one who holds our souls in your very hand. And God, may we have hearts that are inclined and desire and are passionate to seek you with everything in us and to respond with lives of praise and worship. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.